please welcome to the stage, Robbie Hoffman! You know it's an especially professional show when the organizer of the show come up to you and they go, hey, when are you on? I'm like, didn't you book me? You tell me when I'm on. That's how this goes. So a lot of people, a lot of heterosexual men, does any hear? Yeah, because I don't, you know, but a lot of them have, I think they have this dream or this fantasy of a lesbian situation. I've seen the drop-down category on Pornhub. It's a whole section, the subsections of it within the section. And I have a hunch. I just have a feeling that I am not one of the lesbians that these men are dreaming about. Hello, I'm here for the dream. Yeah, this is how it goes down. This is how we do. I'm going to go like this. The sports bra stays on. That's how we do it. I feel more confident that way. That way. Hey, this is Bexy, and you are listening to Not So Kosher. This week, I had the amazing opportunity of interviewing a phenomenal comedian, Robbie Hoffman. She comes from New York, she comes from Montreal, and now she comes out of L.A., make sure you check out Not So Kosher at notsokosher.com. Net, but we now have finally gotten dot com. Some schmuckwad decided that he was going to try to sell it to me. Did I take him on that? Of course I didn't, because I'm a really smart Jewish girl and ain't going to let somebody fuck me. So I got really lucky to check out that not so kosher.com became available. So now I will soon be not so kosher.com, which is exactly what I like. Dot com is like the way to go, right? So it will eventually be not so kosher.net and not so kosher.com. Make sure you check out backroomstudios.com and check out all the different kind of uh, podcasts we got. We're growing like a 50 year old man's dick. Like, not super fast because, you know, it doesn't always grow really fast at that point. So, but we're, you know, we're growing and you should keep your eyes on the prize because Backroom Studios is the prize. Check us out. But, um, so there's not a shit ton going on in my life. Uh, you know, the basic, like... Uh, getting to do some really cool podcasting, which you know how much I love to do that. Um, my my man, my man Bobby's coming back with me. I'm so excited. He had a little hiatus, and now I get to have him back. I can't wait. So make sure you listen gently for him. Don't miss us on Tuesday, November 1st at Camp Bar downtown St. Paul. We're going to be having... Um, a fabulous live taping of Not So Kosher podcast. And we will have Jakey Emerit and 
Sarah McPeck, or you could say Sarah McPeck and Jakey Emerit, because I want to make sure they both get like a huge tagline because they're both fucking amazing. Can't wait. We're going to be doing some things like maybe tasting some people's nuts. I don't know, something like that. So anyways, make sure you come check us out at 7 p.m. Tuesday, November 1st. Don't forget. So now take a listen to the interview with the amazing, phenomenal, fantabulous Robbie Hoffman. Um, In December of 2009, Robbie Hoffman thought, what the fuck? I think I want to be a comedian and has since taken on Montreal's comedy scene by storm. Robbie is a regular in some of Montreal's most successful newspapers and a Montreal weekly radio show as a regular panelist on the next gang of four, which features the city's up and coming leaders in media politics, and of course, the arts. Robbie is a comedian that is funny as shit. Robbie has produced and performed two best-selling shows at the Montreal Fringe Festival and has not only ventured outside of Quebec, performing in Ottawa, Toronto, and Halifax, but also across national borders, making headway in both New York and Los Angeles. She was recently named one of the top 10 comedians by the Montreal Mirror. So take a listen to this interview with Robbie Hoffman. Robbie. Robbie Hoffman. Hey, thanks for joining me on Not So Kosher today. How are you? Oh, I'm well. How are you? I'm fabulous. I'm fabulous. So you're like a well-known comedian in Montreal, but you weren't born in Montreal. You're born in New York, correct? That's correct. And I was born in Crown Heights, Brooklyn, New York. I was, yeah, I was born in Crown Heights, Brooklyn, New York. I was actually born at the Long Island College Hospital. Oh, nice. Why did they go there? Is it nicer at that hospital? Didn't you have a special Actually, ambulance? it was. My mom, they had a new, uh, they kind of had a new birthing area where the rooms had like floral pattern sheets and things to make the women feel more at home. Nice. Um, so the rooms, were, uh, the rooms were actually designed um, to make the birthing experience just a little more comfortable for the moms. Okay. So um, I'm not sure that that was the, why they made that decision or that was just a happy coincidence, but my mom does describe that out of the 10 births, and I don't know if she tells this to everyone, mine was the most comfortable. Oh, and isn't that nice? I think that it has nice? to do with the floral bedding. Wow. Well, I think it's, what I think is interesting is that you're number seven of 10 in the sibling food chain. That is true. Yeah. And so number seven is the divine number of completion in Judaism. So I wonder why she kept on going. Like, why didn't she just like... I know. Well, I think we can all guess why she kept on going. I'm not sure how much she had to do with with, uh, with that, in, you know, in, in choice. Um, not to say, you know, I, I, I'm hesitant to suggest there was a non-consensual um, situation happening, though, unfortunately, uh, within religious communities, that tends to be somewhat of the case. I mean, it's generally consensual, but it's, yeah, you have to question. Yeah. yeah. All right. So, so you're born in the in the Hasidic world, and into yeah. the Hasidic world. And um, at 18, you realize that you might like girls instead of boys. Or did you get a sense of anything yes. before this? Um, no. You've done your research. Um, I really didn't have a sense. 
of uh, of what I was interested in sexually. I mean, I liked boys in high school. I did well with boys. You know, I was, uh, you know, I was no chopped liver in high school or anything. And I had fun with boys, but never was serious. Um, I think overall I had more fun with sexuality than thinking about it, like, seriously in terms of love. I just didn't even really. I was very kid-like for a long time. Um, and I was, I could be one of the guys and I could also make out with the guys, you know, I was kind of, uh, that for a while. And then it was only when I fell in love, um, in CJEP, which is like this middle, uh, middle school for college that they have only in Quebec, Canada, where it's after high school, you do a year or two of this kind of pre-college. Um, and then you do three years of university. So, um, it was in that time that I, uh, I fell in love with somebody, um, non-Jewish girl, uh, Catholic, Italian. And, um, and that's when I knew, but I hadn't really thought about it. I mean, I, I, I never really knew. And only when I could look back in hindsight, I could see some instances where, oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah. I kind of had feelings um, for a woman. Like I looked at a girl and felt something kind of thing like, or. Yeah. Like I, like I just like looked back and I, you know, I just like tiny things like watching the movie, keeping the faith, which is a big favorite in my household. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've got Ben Stiller, you got Jenna Elfman, <laughs> you got Edward Norton, a rabbi and a priest over this love triangle for this blonde girl. Fine. Very typical. Yeah. But then I was like, looking back at that movie, I was like, was I attracted to Ben Stiller? Who's very good looking in that movie, Super or was it Jenna Elfman? And I literally could not. I was like, I thought they were hot together, but I didn't know who I thought was hot. And I remember oh. questioning that second, you know, then like, oh, I think I could have been attracted to her. But see, it was like hard for me. Like in hindsight, I could see those things, but as they were happening, I couldn't. Was there ever a situation where you were, they had already started to like maybe do a shidduch for you? Was there anything that they... Oh, I wasn't Hasidic by this point. I mean, I was only oh. Hasidic in my early childhood. As a okay. teenager, we grew up. My mom left the fold. She took the ten of us. We moved to Canada. Um, ah. And so I wasn't Hasidic when I was a teenager. Got it. But I was still conservative Jewish. Uh, I went to a Jewish school, but I, um, but I went to a mixed boys and girls school. Um, and we were, how they say, frying out. We were slowly but surely... Um, leaving our, you know, very strict traditions behind and keeping only the ones that, that meant so much to us. So, um, so by that point, I mean, I was conflicted about my religion and my sexuality, but it wasn't detrimental. I was already out of the house at 17. I had moved out. So I was like a year on my own and I was wow. kind of away from my family. Yeah. Um, I kind of like took my own time and my own space and, um, I wasn't that connected to my family in that particular time. So um, I was feeling very alone and, you know, and autonomous in my decision-making. I was mostly scared of being um, at school because in your 18, 17 college, I was scared of like walking into the cafeteria and being the dyke because yeah. I remember I knew one lesbian and when she <laughs> did walk into the cafeteria, we all knew she was like the lesbian. Aww. And uh, so I was like afraid that that would, would be me. And it ultimately did be me. And I, and I now embrace this and I'm happy to be that card, but it's a very scary thing to, uh, to realize when you know the one other lesbian and she's not, you know, you're not perceiving her in a, in yeah. a nice light. 
Um, so I was mostly scared socially, even though I was my, my circle was secular Jews. They were still traditional, and we didn't know a lot of gay people. Wow. Interesting. I mean, just in that area, was there just not? I mean, where I am, we're like, you know, it's all over. I mean, it's not like it's like every other person is gay. It's not, and no one thinks about it much. I know this wasn't just yesterday for you, but it wasn't, you know, no, I 20 know. years ago. But No, it was, um, yeah, it was like uh, everybody was, was a, I went to a, like a kind of, I went to a private Jewish school. I was there on scholarship. And so everybody was in a, you know, a higher financial class than I was. Yeah. Um, and they grew up with pretty strict traditional views of what families meant. And even though they weren't Hasidic, they were still uh, pretty conservative in their uh, relationship lifestyles and things like that. So it was that same pressure I felt did exist. Now, the thing is, it wasn't like there weren't gay people. They yeah. just weren't in a setting where they could come out freely. Now I know a whole slew of gay people. You know, many yeah. times I've seen, you know, of Jews and gays go, you know, I mean, hand in hand. Yeah, But exactly. um, coming out at those ages, at 18, 17, still very young for those communities, for, uh, for, for a lot of Jews to find that sort of courage, um, is what I felt. And I was one of the first. Did now, you? since, yeah. you know, over my 20s, I, I've seen people come out, and that's great. But um, it was a... Yeah, a pretty clicky and social, socially intimidating time to come out when I did. And you did you come out to these friends, to this group of friends at that time? Well, or? I don't know how much time you have, but I was actually <laughs> outed, um, oh. and it was sprung upon me. So I was dating this uh, Catholic Italian girl who was not religious at all, who was kind of a punk. She, you know, did things that I, uh, you know, uh, found reckless. She uh, was somebody who spray painted, graffitied, you know, stenciled (laughs) things on the walls and public places that I was very afraid of. And I was a pretty good girl. I was very studious and we were in this uh, Socrataic style English class. It was kind of like you could choose this higher learning path after you wrote an essay or whatever creative style um, where you would in very small classrooms sit around on couches and with wonderful professors discuss literature. She was in this group and that was my first kind of foray outside of the Jewish community because I was one of the only few Jews in that class. Uh Everybody else had come from like these liberal arts high schools and very, um, everybody was eager about the material in the classes. So it was like a first time that you could be excited about learning and it wasn't like geeky necessarily. People were cool and smart. Um, and she was in that class, so uh, she came late, and she would mm. hand her assignments in, wax basally, or you know. And we were very opposite. I sat for, uh, front and center. I was always on time. I was very preppy at the time, and very into doing well in school, and, and thinking of school as my meal ticket, kind of out of the impoverishment that I grew up in, Mm. and I kind of wanted to fit in with the classes that I saw around me having gone to this private school. And I thought, well, you know what? I'm on the same playing field now. I got into the same school. Um, So I I kind of have the same opportunity, which I felt I didn't want to squander at all. Um, So she was very opposite to me, but we had an immediate attraction. We talked online, um, but she said weird things to me that that really turned me off and I hadn't even given any thought about being a lesbian at this point like I 
Ah. I was like, it ah. wasn't even like a question. Like I was for sure going to marry some rich Jewish boy and have a nice life and be done with it already after the hell I'd been through. Um, and then when we started talking, she had said things like, oh, you know, what would you do if I kissed you? And I literally, I would block and delete her and I told her that I would call the cops and I don't even know what I said, but, um, and then like a few weeks later I would re-add her, we would talk again, but she was very forward and I thought she was just crazy and weird and, and, but interesting. And when we talked all the time and then finally we did kiss at the end of the year school party, which was held at a bar for this particular class. And, um, and then she was a secret for a long time because I was kind of in this very clicky group, uh, you know, friendship group that were all Jews, you know, and they were all pretty insular and pretty um, sheltered. Yeah. Um, so she and she would often press me. She would say, you know, we, we hang out with my friends. Why can't we hang out with your friends? And I said, you understand my friends will not. They're not just going to, like, think I have a new friend who's, like, this punk. They're going to be, they're going to know you're a lesbian. Pretty obvious something's up with you. And I just, I can't. And um, and then we were caught ultimately making out at a bar by somebody I'd gone to school with. And she had said it. And I, my good friend Allie, who's still a very good friend of mine, she called me. She said, hey, just want to let you know that I'm hearing these things. I love you no matter what. Awesome. Um, you don't have to talk about anything. You can talk about things. I'm here. I love you. I don't care what I'm hearing. Just thought you should know because whenever somebody's talking about you, I, I don't want you to, you know, Yeah. I don't like hearing that type of stuff. So she was just such a good friend. And then that's when I started going to people because I didn't want them to hear from other people. Cool. But I had to kind of like quick, quick do it and kind of went to my mother. She was... Uh, I went over to my mom's for Shabbat dinner, and she was playing music in her room. And I just said, "Hey, mom, uh, I'm gay. I have a uh, blonde girlfriend. And no, she doesn't want to come for Shabbat." And that was like it. <laughs> okay, that's good. <laughs> Done. Yeah. Right. Then we move Done. on. Then we move on, and we we become an accountant. And right. But then somehow we decide that we don't want to do that anymore. We want to be a comedian. Is that how it went down? Yeah, well, I grew up, like I said, poor, but yeah. with this idea of what um, success meant yeah. going to this private school. Um, so when I got into McGill, again, I saw this as an opportunity to compete with the haves. Mm-hmm. You know, here was my opportunity to have not to really to, to blend in. Nobody will know. I'm not visibly a minority in any way. Um, and I feel like I had a lot of opportunities in my situation. So I didn't want to squander it again. And I was very terrified of being poor. And I was pretty good in lots of subjects. And I did really like school. And school was a very good distraction for other, you know, stuff I was feeling and, and, and that sort of thing. But um, I basically had a meeting with my academic advisor, which they set all the new students up with. And I just said, what's the least amount of school I could do for the most amount of payoff? <laughs> and, uh, you know, basically the business school, she had let me know that, you know, they have so many recruitment opportunities that happen right there. A lot of people go to the McGill Business School and they have jobs as like they get hired while they're students as students. And then they just, that's 
you know, what parlays into their careers. Yeah. And I thought, oh, that's amazing. So I just did it. And it was easy and it was great. And I majored in accounting with one of my good friends who also exactly the same thing as me. And she's since left. So she went pretty far at the firm. Um, we just did it. I like, I, I can't even explain it. Like I just, when you're poor, you don't look at school. Like, you know, I always wanted to study literature and art and things like that, but yeah. I always thought I could do that on my own. And my parents were so intellectual and my mom especially had all these resources at her house. You know, she, I always like joke, she has a house full of books only, you know, it's a small house, but yeah. like, I could always do that on my own, but this was an education that you had to pay for. I needed to be certified and, you know, so I didn't want to squander it. So I just did it. And I had a minor in communications, which I loved, which got me out of the business school and into the arts building. And I found myself explaining to a lot of privileged kids, ironically, um, you know, feminist study majors or gender study majors. Uh, I was trying to get involved with the student queer community um, that I was still discovering. And I found a lot of pushback, a lot of people judging me based on my major, um, you know, thinking that I'm Interesting. some rich whatever, when yeah. in fact it was the opposite. These were kids coming from Connecticut and upstate New York with full tuitions paid, and they were able to, you know, to study for four years in something like, you know, just truly for the sake of studying, like, yeah. like gender studies or something that was interesting every day. Um, and I and I felt really misunderstood in, in what it really is like to be a low-income kid trying to do this thing. Um, but it was hard because a lot of the political conversations centered around, um, you know, centered around what low-income, you know, class divides and what low-income people need and what, you know, marginalized communities need when, in fact, I was one of the, I was probably the only in many circles person that could actually relate to that experience there, yet my voice was often silenced did you, based on my nature. How long did you work in the accounting field? Um, three and a half years. Okay. And were you doing comedy, yeah. like some of the, did you start doing it while you were do, there? Were you... Yeah, so I got a great job at a firm, KPMG, still amazing people, had a great time there, met wonderful people. Um, And then KPMG did this thing where they divided your workspace up by personality, and I got red color, so all the people on my floor were like Italian and Jews. It was amazing. (laughs) Um, And then you would go to some floors that were like dead silent, because like those were like yellows, but I don't know what color they were, but like green something just yeah um but our floor was so fun and then i i was uh, still friends with a i had a couple instances so my good friend steph walkman who now works in television um she was a theater major at mcgill and we became good friends we met at a queer party and she's an iraqi jew and she's just a wonderful person and she we just hit it off and she said oh you've got to be a comedian it was one incident and she said I want to produce plays I'm going to make a fringe show I really she was just such a hands-on person I can't even describe and she still is and now she's doing it on such a higher level it's amazing Mm. to see but um so she said I'm buying us a fringe show it's four hundred dollars and we'll make the money back and more and you're gonna do 45 minutes of stand-up and I'll do everything else Wow. And I hadn't had, I never even thought about stand up. It's not even like some people say they have their influences. You know, they looked at 
Ellen or this or that. Like, I wasn't a stand-up fan. Didn't really know of it as a, as a thing. I mean, I've heard of stand-up comedians, but I really started appreciating stand-ups and the greats before me as I started it, really. So wow. it was like a, you know, it, it was... Um, my words are not coming to me today. Yeah, but anyway, it was, you know, um, parallel kind of. So... So that was one incident that forced me literally. And then I had gone to visit two friends who were still finishing their degrees at Dalhousie University in Halifax, two old friends. And we had gone for Indian food and we were just laughing and laughing. I was just telling stories about my mother and we, I couldn't even, we were just all dying. Like I basically had, I killed like a 40 minute dinner set and we could not get the food down because of, we were laughing. And then after that dinner, um, I just said, yeah, I'm going to do stand up. And my friends weren't surprised. Nobody was like, oh, that seems like crazy. They were like, yeah, you, you should. So you must be like, funny. Why, why wouldn't you? You must've been funny all the time. It wasn't just a couple of incidences. You must be, did you not think you were, or. I thought it you... was funny, but I didn't think like, like stand up seemed like, I, I mean, it didn't even seem like a thing, yeah, you know, it was yeah. not, it's not like I grew up with it. <laughs> so I came to it late and then Steph had suggested so these two incidences. I just, Steph had suggested this crazy thing. And I kind of thought, well, we, she would never talk to me about it again. Little did I know behind since she had bought the show. She's already printing posters. She's already, you know, oh, shit. um, <laughs> and, and then I just did it. I got back from Halifax and December 4th, it was like, I can't remember when, but it was two days, two or three days right after my birthday, 23rd birthday. And I did it. I went up to this. I I went to the comedy club and I asked, "Where's the worst place to bomb?" And I went to this loft and um, and then I I yeah I just did it and I started doing it. So you obviously were comfortable. Day. You were comfortable the first time you did it, or were you nervous? Or I mean, um, no. This story, no. So the first time I did it, I did it this at this loft. Um, it was a great loft on Prince Arthur Street in Montreal, and it was very Montreal. It was just this artist loft, and he would throw a show every Friday, and it became a little bit of a comedian's hang. I got on the list. People would smoke there, and I never smoked weed or yeah. anything. So for me, again, like, I was a really good girl. I still am. I mean, I don't engage in that, but I'm comfortable around it now. Yeah. But there, it was, it's still quite shell-shocking for me. To be around older guys, you know, older people who were just chilling like that, you know. Yeah, yeah. So I got up and it was just, you know, lopsided couches there and people strewn all over, you know, a feet dangling from the loft bed above and smoking indoors and no fire exit and all kinds. Um, and I got up and, and I had taken a shot. The guys who I met there to this day, some of the sweetest guys I know were so nice to me. I met mm. these three guys, Morgan, George, and Chris. Um, this guy, Hazel Butt, was also there. Morgan O'Shea, uh, Chris Elgar, and George Braithwaite, just to get their names there. But um, they were just wonderful and talked to me in the back, and we all did a shot. And then I got up, and I was so nervous. I was so dizzy. I was a little drunk Aye. that I did, like, one thing, one joke, and then I was like, well, I did have four more minutes. But I'm feeling very dizzy, and I think I'll sit down now. Thank you. <laughs> and that was it. And then I went up to Morgan, the host after, and I was like, wait, I, 
like, I feel better now. Like, I just needed to sit, and I, can I finish? I have four more. He's like, no, you just got to come back and I sleep. And I was like, what? And um, I, I had no idea how it worked. And then I came back next week, and I, I went back almost every week. I was a regular there, um, and I loved that room, and I worked all the other rooms. And by the time the Fringe show came, I did have 40 minutes. It's amazing. And I had those wow. same guys open for me. Cool. And we sold out, and we became one of the uh, of eighty eight shows. We were a top ten show. Oh, fucking awesome! We had a little space, um, Cafe Campus, and and to Steph Walkman's credit, you know, we sold. I went to radio stations. We advertised. I was cool. really making the rounds. I was postering with my old Jewish friends around the city. They were now backing me and saying, "Hey, we got to get this sold out." And everybody was just involved, and it was wonderful. As a quote-unquote famous Montreal woman, you were asked to do a TED Talk. Um, oh, God. Did that freak the shit out of you? Like, were you like, or did you know that was coming? <laughs> no, it, it, it didn't freak me out. I was asked to do it, but I mean, it was a TEDx talk. So these yeah. had been going on and like, you know, satellite TED Talks were going on in all the, <clears throat> in a bunch of cities. So it wasn't as intimidating as a TED Talk, you know, where a real... PhD or somebody qualified yeah. to talk on something. Yeah. It was very loosey-goosey, and they wanted it to be very personal. It was a different experience because it wasn't storytelling without, you know, storytelling with guidance. Um, you know, we, we were linked up with kind of advisors, and the advisors would look through your notes or look through your drafts and then tell you what they wanted you to expand on, what they found interesting, what was not. Um, and they really asked me to get personal. So it, it was not my choice to get that personal or to be so preachy, but they had asked me and I, and, and when they did ask me for my advice or things like that, I said, you know, uh, I'm really in no position to be giving any advice. I'm too young to give advice, I yeah, think. Yeah. Um, and they, they said, well, you can give advice through your story. As long as you frame it, you tell your story. And that, so that's what I tried to stick to as most as I could. It was great. I thought you did an amazing job. I mean, you just, Oh, thank you. Was it a large audience that was there? Like, Mm -hmm. how many? Yeah, they they packed that theater. Like how many many people were there? I mean, it's like a, is it a thousand or is it a 10,000? Like, is it a, you can't, I couldn't see. I think it's like a thousand, 500. I literally like, you could tell me any number. I'm not good with theaters. I couldn't see past the first row. Yeah, you couldn't see. But it was a big theater. Cool. Cool. That's, it's, you're very lucky that you got to do that. And I applaud you for telling your stories too. I think they're awesome. Um, Robbie, thank thank you so much for being on today. I have... I have one little question before we, before we end though, because, because we're on the not so kosher show, I have to throw in like just a little bit of dirt. Right. So I need to know, like, and I know people are really going to want to know this. Like, are you a thong girl, a full on granny panty or a commando girl? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'm brief. I'm brief. Calvin Klein brief. (laughs) That's it. You know, I used to wear those. I should. I didn't even know that I could yeah, find those anymore. Her way. There you Hain, go. Hands her way. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Honey, thank you so much. And people can find you at. They can go on Facebook, my Robbie Hoffman page, um, which I should be updating. But mostly on Twitter, uh, my handle is I am Robbie Hoffman. For any nude pictures, they could go to Instagram, Robbie Hoffman. For any nude pictures. 
Yeah, trendy nudes. Oh, I love it. it. (laughs) Oh, you're so with it, Robbie. I love it so much. Honey, thank (laughs) you so much for joining me on Not So Kosher today. Oh, thank you so much, Becca. I hope to see you soon.